This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today, we're talking with Professor Joshua Wiederman. He's a professor of head and neck surgery at the Special Hospital in Aida Mekel in Ethiopia. So Joshua, thank you very much for having us. Did I pronounce all of those things properly? The, the names of the hospital are confusing. Ider Tertiary uh, Hospital in Mekele uh, University in Mekele, Ethiopia. But you were right there. Great. Thank you so much. So Dr. Weedman's story is he finished a very um, prestigious head and neck surgery program in the United States. It was University of Chicago, correct? Yeah, that was the, my pediatric fellowship there. So you did medical school, ear, nose, and throat, specializing in pediatric ear, nose, correct. and throat things. And then you decided that instead of the business path, you decided to go down the humanitarian path and set up a really a, a residency program for ear, nose, and throat in Ethiopia, which there's a huge talk about burnout and lack of commitment to the field. And a lot of physicians are looking to leave medicine to go into other things. It's very refreshing to look, look at someone and see someone like yourself who is really going above and beyond, going to another country. Um, sh- sharing medicine really for the sake of just helping people that don't have they have the drive and the willingness they just don't have the opportunity and you're providing them that opportunity and i think it's worthwhile saying that a lot of people when they volunteer they will go to a place they will say give food or they will give of their time which is which is very admirable but it doesn't really leave a long lasting impression on people that are there whereas you're taking the approach you're teaching these people to fish so that way one day you really have a self self sustaining program yeah uh, that's a extremely well put that is our ultimate goal here is to have a program that's completely self sustainable that that there is no reason for me or other people like me to be here do you want to give us a little bit of back a little bit of background on to who you are and how you got into medicine Yeah, I uh, grew up in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. I had two pediatricians as parents and didn't decide to do medicine until I went to college at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, And there I did the normal boring path of molecular and cellular biology and then went to medical school at George Washington. And in George Washington, I took the path Uh, They had like specialized tracks that you could study along with medicine. And I chose medical education simply for the idea of maybe becoming, you know, a program director or a dean of a medical school as an ultimate goal. And then in residency at George Washington as well, uh, I found myself falling into quality improvement uh, work and research where combining the two really created an atmosphere in my brain on I like to find systems, figure out where those systems are failing, and then shore it up, you know, weld the weld the hole. So when I went to fellowship at Lurie Children's in, in Chicago, I ultimately decided to take those interests I had, which were teaching and systems evaluation, and go to Ethiopia to establish a, a residency program and, and see if we could build something uh, to the Western standard in an area that 
had no Western standard. Now, when people are thinking of places in, in other parts of the world, it, sometimes it's hard to identify with them as someone that's like yourself. I, I can think of often if you watch, you know, those Feed the Children commercials on TV, it's easy to look at those commercials and think, well, that would never happen to anyone that I know, or those people are just totally different, or there's something different about them. And that's why their country is not doing well versus the US. It's just a different culture, or people are different. But what's your experience living and working in that in, in Ethiopia? You know, it's a, it's a really interesting perspective. And I kind of had those same thoughts growing up too. I never in a million years thought I would be actually practicing my profession in a foreign country. And uh, I didn't really understand why other areas couldn't develop the same as the United States. And and now that I'm older, I know that that's a completely silly thought. And it's kind of, it lacks introspection to think that, you know, just because we do it, why can't somebody else do it? But speaking from what I've experienced here is very interesting. Ethiopia in and it itself is a very thriving country, uh, never have been colonized. They've been developing their own economic and governments for decades. And so they've created a priority to pushing medicine to the next level. So they've put a lot of emphasis into subspecialized medicine care, which is allowing them to treat higher level medical conditions, people that would otherwise pass away, unfortunately, which has forced the development of high impact intensive care units, both pediatric and adult. And so if you're now able to care for patients that are intubated and you're prolonging their life uh, for various reasons to allow these medical subspecialties, subspecialties to weigh in and to treat these patients, you start opening the doors for very complex pathology. And that complex pathology that used to be cared for by the general surgeons who are now overburdened with the responsibility of all of these unique problems, it then paves the path for subspecialty surgery. So in a country that has never had otolaryngology head and neck surgery, there is this sudden need for it. So you can't just create otolaryngology head and neck surgery as a subspecialty and expect it to work the way it's designed to or the way it does in the United States. You have to first have access to the knowledge, which is copious in today's world, uh, with everybody having access to the internet. You can learn how to be an otolaryngologist easily. Then you need the equipment in order to do so. And either the government pays for it or mission trips come in and donate it. But the hard part is making the bridge between the technology and the information in the textbook, the actual clinical practice. And that's where putting somebody on the ground that has at least a tiny bit of experience in those really intricate subspecialty surgeries has made a world of difference, at least in the nine months that I've been here. And it's been really fascinating to watch. Just to comment on that specific point of or you can read information from a textbook, you can look at videos, educational videos online, but it's different when you have someone there actually showing you how to do it. And I don't think that can be replaced by a video or a book. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, we have 12 residents now, and it is so much fun to teach them because 
before our arrival, their surgery was really isolated to maybe a little bit of ear surgery, tonsillectomy, maybe a septoplasty here and there. But they had read about all these amazing head and neck surgeries, complex sinus surgeries. And so they felt like their lives weren't being fulfilled. They, you know, they were supposed, they went into this specialty for this surgery and the textbooks told them they would have this surgery, um, but they weren't able to make that transition because you need someone with the confidence and experience that had done these surgeries for to guide them. Uh, and it's that little tiny bridge that is really all they need because the residents here are intelligent. And if you give them just a tiny bit of confidence to back up that intelligence, they perform extremely well. Most 99% of the residents and physicians in the States went into medicine really to help other people. And they're very down to earth, caring people. But there is that maybe 1% that kind of spoil it for everyone. And they tend to be arrogant and, and give the field a bad name. What's your experience with the residents in Ethiopia compared to residents that you've worked with before? Now, you're going to get me in trouble for, for that question. But the residents that I work with here are better than any of the residents that I've ever worked with before. And I'm sorry if any of the residents that I've worked with before are listening to this now, but it's because of exactly the principle you're referring to. Unfortunately, uh, medical students and residents, at least the ones that I, were, I was working with, to the, to the majority extent, feel entitled to certain things. Like if you were to go to the operating room for a day, if the resident was not able to do a majority of the procedure so that they could log it as a procedure that they did, they'd be very upset and, and resentful and spiteful to the attending. Where the chance to do that is really, it needs to be earned. You have to prepare for the you have to prepare for the procedure ahead of time. You need to know the patient extremely well. And only then can you participate in the treatment of that patient. That's how medicine should be. And so that pretest probability of being entitled to doing a procedure makes the experiment experience less enjoyable. And I think less is learned overall. But the residents here, they see every single tiny element of medicine as a game, as something that makes them more powerful, as something that gives them the expertise to really help their patients that they always see struggling and dying here. And they are so thirsty for knowledge and, and technique that teaching them is, is such a treat. It's interesting that you make that comment because uh, for those that don't know, anyone uh, going through the medical process, you have to, when you become a senior resident or you become an attending, you typically will teach junior residents or medical students, etc. And the students that that show up and don't have that sense of entitlement and are really just happy to be there and want to learn as much as they can, they end up learning so much more because they have an open mind and they're going to learn things that they wouldn't have even paid attention to if they were only focusing on doing the procedure itself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So you're going, you went, came from the US with lots of infrastructure and lots of things that you could reasonably expect, like equipment and all of the operating room staff knowing exactly what you need to do? Or what are some of the challenges that you faced really creating a whole new program that is technically very demanding and very demanding on the infrastructure and technology that you need? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. It has a couple of different answers. So when we step back and look at the residency as a whole, the question is, how do you create a residency that that is is powerful and academic? So first, you have to instill the uh, need for academic rigor and patient responsibility. 
when I first arrived, uh, the residency was brand new, only a year old. And this is only the third residency in all of Ethiopia, by the way. The other two residencies are both in the capital city. And our residency up here in Mekale is the, it serves the entire northern half of Ethiopia. So it's very important strategically while we're here. But before I got here, the residents, there was no cohesion among the residents. Patients that were admitted as an inpatient would be seen by individual residents uh, and the attendings would usually not be involved in care unless there was an emergency. But the residents didn't talk to one another. So the patients only received the care of that one mind, where if you instill uh, the idea of rounding and pre-rounding and having a list, you create a collective mind, not like the Borg and Star Trek collective mind, but like a, a team mind, where you can make decisions based on the best thoughts of everybody there. And so that was a very important start is, is how do you do patient care? How do you take ownership of your patients? So that was a big struggle at the beginning. And then we instilled all the academic rigor I was talking about with specialized conferences like morbidity and mortality, journal club, radiology conference, and, and tumor boards so people could work with different departments and realize that, team, that medicine is, a, is truly a team sport. You have to work together. So... Putting all of that together, you can build on an academic residency, but that still doesn't fix the problem of performing a very subspecialized skill in an area that wasn't prepared for it. So lucky for us, over the last decade, there have been many mission trips to this hospital from other EMTs and ear surgeons who have donated equipment and one of the former chief medical officers of the hospital put in money towards buying equipment for the, for the future ENT department. So a lot of the materials were here. But the infrastructure in doing these complex surgeries didn't exist. Like if you do an airway surgery, how do you keep someone intubated but not on the vent? How do you keep that tube clean? How do you do a bilateral choanoatresis surgery and stent it and have that patient monitored closely in the NICU and doing Q1 hour suctions to keep that stent open. All of that infrastructure took a lot of one-on-one -on -one individual talking, and that's very frustrating to uh, have to use all that time and energy trying to organize every other department other than your own. And in terms of pure equipment and surgical frustrations, an example happened yesterday uh, where we were doing an emergent uh, mastoidectomy on a nine-year-old that had very aggressive meningitis that was found to be from an ear source. So you clear out the bone behind the ear to get rid of the infection because you assume that's the connection. So as we start to prep this case, uh, the child is under anesthesia, we're all ready to go, and then we press on the button for the drill to work and the drill doesn't work. After 15 minutes of trying to triage it, we can't figure it out. So do we just wake this kid up and hope that antibiotics works? No, we have to revert to the time where drills didn't exist. Uh, and so we got out our chisel and hammer. And uh, you got a, it's literally a chisel and hammer. Literally a chisel and hammer uh, that the orthopedic surgeons, and we do too for mandibular work, uh, use to, to work through bone. So very carefully, we did a hammer and chisel to remove the bone behind the ear, and we were able to clear the infection and to see where the infection entered the brain, clear that out. And the kid this morning was the happiest person ever. And I was glad to see it.
but that's an example of how, how frustrating things can be. So here's a part of medicine that does not get as much conversation, as much public thought is it's medicine. And no matter how good of a physician team you have, at some point, things are not going to go well. Like people will not live forever. Yeah. How does the team, because it's, it sounds like clearly they're very engaged. They want to do well. They really want to help people. And when you don't get the best outcome from the surgery, that's a hard thing to take. Yeah. And especially if they're the first class of ear, nose, and throat physicians in that country, their burden, I would empathize with them and, and imagine it'd be very heavy. So how yeah. do they deal with that when things don't go well? Uh, another really excellent question. I struggle with this constantly. And this was the hardest thing for me. In the United States, ENT is one of the cushiest specialties possible because we sit, we sit back and people send us referrals. We don't even need to really think about it. They come with a diagnosis and we're mostly uh, executing complex surgery. But the, the whole medicine that surrounds it isn't as complex as, as it is here. And then death is very rare in the ENT world and is really only centered around uh, complex airway patients and cancer patients that usually uh, are expected to die because the disease is so terrible. Here in Ethiopia, death is, is unfortunately an accepted, accepted alternative to medicine. And so, for example, like if I were to go into the ICU and, you know, one of our patients had died overnight in the ICU, I want to know why. Like, why did that patient die? What did we do to fail? And the response I get from the ICU staff is that the patient died of cardiac arrest, which is kind of silly to say because every single person dies of cardiac arrest eventually. But I want to know why their heart stopped. And when you try to dig into that analysis, it, that uh, method of thinking uh, isn't well developed in the, in the medicine world and in the intensive care unit. So I'm really teaching my residents that you have to take ownership for these patients, which includes understanding how they died, so that we can sit down as a team later and review that and figure out what we can do next time to prevent that death. And that's what morbidity and mortality is all about. But if you come to the morbidity and mortality table with the answer of the patient died of cardiac arrest, you'll get nowhere because you don't actually understand why that patient died. So Dealing with death is always very frustrating, but the best way to deal with it is by figuring out what went wrong so that you can fix it next time. And that's something we're really struggling with here uh, at, our, at our university. So it sounds like the program is coming along well. You have very motivated students. Um, but when people think of, or at least when I think of an ear, nose, and throat attending in the United States, I, I'm picturing maybe a very nice condo, a very nice house, a nice car. How are you living in Ethiopia? <laughs> um, so comfort is a relative thing. So, you know, when you are a resident in the United States and you're making very little money, you live comfortably among, I mean, at your means, at what you make. And then when you become an attending and make more money, you suddenly live better. But you were, you were happy in both situations. You're just changing your, your level of comfort. Here in Ethiopia, the physicians are paid very, very little money. For example, our residents are paid just about, just under 100 USD a month for all of their ridiculously hard work. 
and the attending surgeons are not paid very much more. So the emphasis, and that's because these are all government hospitals, so their wages are fixed. And so a lot of the emphasis turns to private medicine. They have to operate their own private clinics in order to earn more money. So then teaching becomes less of a thing because these doctors are in their private clinics rather than in the hospitals teaching residents. But to answer your question, um, I live perfectly comfortably. The really cool thing about living here is uh, rent is extremely cheap. And there are all these really talented carpenters that live all over the city. And you just go to them and say, okay, can you build me a bed and a dresser and a kitchen table? And they say, sure, give me the dimensions. I'll have it to you in a couple of days. And you can literally go each day and watch them hand carve wood. And it's one of the most beautiful things ever. So that, that adds to the luxury of life, to be able to, to live with such elegant craftsmanship. But to be honest, you know, I, things are very tough here. Everything you do is 10 times harder than it should be, but it's very enjoyable. You should facilitate selling handmade tables because I had to buy a table. And I don't, for anyone who's bought a table in the U.S., they're very expensive for just some <laughs> wood. Very, very expensive. So what's your ultimate vision for this, this program? I know we touched on it before, but if you can give a little bit more details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had no idea what to expect when I first got here, but now that I'm nine months into it, I can actually see this program being completely sustainable from the resident's perspective. So the oldest resident we have now is just started their third year, and so they have two more years to go. And so these guys are armed with the knowledge and, and experience to teach the ones below them. And so if, if everything that we've laid out can be self-sustainable from a resident perspective, it will just be passed on and passed on and passed on for as long as the department exists. And I can say with absolute confidence that our ENT department here in Macaulay is the most uh, advanced, uh, creative, and successful uh, department. So it is, it is now the, the epicenter of, of head and neck surgery uh, in Ethiopia. And uh, so it, people are very proud to work here. The residents are very proud to get into this facility. For example, the, net, the latest round of residents that we accepted, we accepted four residents from a pool of around 350 applicants. And so it's a, it's a very tight competitive market now that word has gotten out that, that we're really doing, we're pushing the limits of, of head and neck surgery in Ethiopia. So how do you even choose four people from, I'm sure, 350 very qualified applicants? The, it's, it's not done by us at all. It has zero input from the institution. It's based 100% on the person's preference and their score on the standardized exam. So if the top four want to come to Mechelen University, then they get it. They just have to score perfectly on the exam. Which I'm sure it's not an easy exam. Oh, no. No, I hear it's very difficult. I haven't taken it myself. That would be interesting if I tried to take it. I'd probably fail it. But, uh, yeah, the, these guys are super intelligent that are, that are working with us. So the, the last thing I'd like you to comment on is there's this, this issue of burnout in the U.S. where relative to... I am sure relative to what you're making, U.S. physicians are making a lot more. They're not getting by on $100 a month. They don't have to have their bed made by the local carpenter. 
They have a lot of technology at their disposal. The risk is a lot less. I'm sure you're very engaged with the program, working after hours, sorting out problems. But throughout this entire conversation, it seems that you're very engaged, you're very happy, and, and rightfully so very proud of what you're doing, whereas physicians in the U.S., are extremely dissatisfied and frankly miserable in the field of medicine. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I felt the same way at the end of my training. I was starting to become discouraged with where my profession was going it, personally. I felt like I wasn't actually a doctor. As I mentioned before, people would come to us with a diagnosis already. I, didn't, I felt like a technician rather than a clinician. And add on top of that, all of the really stringent responsibilities of a resident and a fellow and attending to, to document everything, to do everything perfectly. And I understand all of that is based on on quality improvement measures. Like if you are this uh, exacting in your documentation analysis, uh, you're trying to save money, that's better healthcare supposedly. But all of that really eats at you as a physician. Uh, and although you're doing the same profession that I do here, you're overburdened with things that aren't fulfilling. It doesn't feel good to write a five-page history and physical because it meets all the guidelines to get a certain amount of refunding from, from insurance. So all of that doesn't exist here in Macaulay. And we have patients that are way sicker. So although on a daily basis, I am very stressed and overworked and things are very difficult in a difficult environment, we are taking very, very sick people and making them better. And we're doing that from scratch with, with you know, help as a team. And that is why I did medicine. So for the first time in my life, the work that I'm doing is extremely fulfilling. And so all of that stress is just physical. It doesn't wear on me emotionally. And, uh, and quite frankly, this is probably going to be the most fulfilling thing I do in my entire career. And I will advocate for you. So you, for anyone who wants to follow what you're doing, you do have a blog, headandnecksurgeryinmechel.com, and we'll include that in the show notes. And for anyone who wants to contribute to this, I think, very worthwhile, I'll contribute, I'm, I'm planning on contributing, um, <laughs> worthwhile project, you have a GoFundMe page. Uh, it's headandnecksurgeryinmechel-Ethiopia. Again, we'll include that in the show notes. So any closing thoughts or anything you want people to know about what you're doing? Yeah, and, and, and thank you for volunteering to contribute so everybody can hear you. Now I can hold you to it. But uh, oh, I know, that's why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm holding myself accountable. <laughs> so in, in order to, to make this program sustainable, uh, it requires all types of help. Having people on the ground, I think, is, is probably the most important thing. So for anyone who is interested, not only in the ENT department, but interested in creating similar or different products within this hospital, I encourage you to reach out to me. We'll also put the, my email uh, available uh, for anyone to, to contact me. But having people on the ground, like I said, is the most important thing. Second is, is equipment. Uh, and as we are becoming more obviously important to the institution, the institution will now start funneling money in to get us equipment. But until that uh, process occurs, until we really get buy-in from the government that says, okay, head and neck is extremely valuable. And if we didn't have them, our standard of care would decrease dramatically. Until that happens, 
the support we get is extremely important and, and very much appreciated by the entire department here. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Wiedemann, thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with everything that you're doing with really spreading medicine and goodwill over the, over the world in Africa. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.